well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am glad that you have joined us on the program today. We're going to be talking about the courts uh, here in just a, a matter of moments. Not only has Joe Biden uh, announced a Supreme Court commission uh, that uh, he says will take a look at uh, you know potential changes and reforms necessary uh, for the Supreme Court, uh, we've got a number of uh, lawsuits underway across the country right now challenging gun control laws. What is the makeup of the Supreme Court going to look like by the time those cases uh, get up to uh, well, I was going to say nine justices, but I suppose it could be 13 at the moment. Uh, all of that very much an open question. Um, and, you know, listen, I, I continue to believe that uh, none of this is happening in a vacuum. Um, if, for instance, the Democrats under Joe Biden were to try to pack the court, that would not be done in isolation. In order to do that, they would have to nuke the filibuster. And once the filibuster is nuked, uh, they would be doing a lot more than packing the court. Um, all of this is basically contingent on the idea that the filibuster for legislation is going to remain in place. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have both said that they have no plans to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, but it is still very much a, a live threat, and there are still... Uh, not even daily demands, hourly demands by the left to go ahead and get rid of the filibuster, uh, to, to remove it, to allow the passage of major legislation when there's 51 votes. Um, you know, you could say it's short-sighted of, of Democrats to do so, but if they honestly believe that they're never going to lose another election, then it's not particularly short-sighted of them, is it? In fact, uh, you know, now what better time than the present if, if they don't really have any concerns about the political repercussions of something like this. So I'll be honest with you, as I am each and every day, um, I'm worried about this. I'm, I'm concerned about it. Now, I don't believe that the threat is imminent. I don't think that they're going to try to pack the court next week. But I think that they are laying the groundwork so that when some issue arises, and let's say, uh, you know, in terms of a, if they want to try to nuke the filibuster uh, in order to pass gun control, you can imagine the next time there is an active assailant who kills a lot of people, you can imagine Democrats saying, aha, look, we need this Biden gun ban and we can't get it right now because of these recalcitrant Republicans. We need to nuke the filibuster. And we need to pass this gun ban with 51 votes. Right. But it doesn't have to be gun control. They could do it with any number of issues. They could do it with a, a Green New Deal. They could do it with a stimulus bill. Um, but there is clearly a desire on the part of, I would say, the majority of Democrats at this point um, to remove that last check on pure majoritarianism in Congress. Uh, and I, I, I suspect that, uh, you know, the, the more political types are, are thinking, well, let's, if we're going to do this, we, we, we should either do it now, we should do it soon, so that the voters will have had a chance to digest this uh, and maybe have even forgotten about it by the time the midterms come around, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, or let's push this back past the midterms uh, and let's try to you know, solidify our gains here 
Um, there, there's a lot of political calculations going on. This is not necessarily about principle. This is about power and it's about politics and it's about when is the most opportune time to actually push the button and nuke the filibuster and uh, start passing again major, major pieces of legislation, including major infringements on a right to keep and bear arms with just 51 votes. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do believe, again, that the groundwork is being laid right now. So in the meantime, we do still have nine justices on the Supreme Court. On paper and in theory, at least five, probably six, but at least five of those justices understand the importance of protecting the right to keep and bear arms. The question now is what cases are going to be getting up to the Supreme Court in a timely manner? Uh, and will the court agree to hear some of these cases? Uh, there are a couple of cases that are are sort of percolating right now um, at the Supreme Court level. Although the Supreme Court has not agreed to hearing of these cases yet, they've reached the Supreme Court, uh, and over the next couple of months, they will be uh, up for review by the court. For example, um, the court did take a case called Coniglia versus Storm, which deals with it's not a Second Amendment case. Exactly. It deals with the seizure of firearms, but it's really more of a Fourth Amendment case. Um, but you've got a, uh, a, a, a see February 19th case called the McGinnis versus U.S., which is also dealing with prohibited persons. Uh, that will be heard in conference. The court will decide whether or not to accept that case. You've also got uh, a case uh, in our uh, excuse me, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Courtlet uh, that challenges New York's carry licenses. Um, the petition for the court to hear the case has already been filed. A response is due by the state of New York uh, on February 22nd. And then once that response has been received by the court, the justices will consider taking that case in conference. So that'll probably be, you know, mid-March at some point uh, before they start considering the courtlet case. Um, but there's another case that's been filed. It's, it's, it's not near the Supreme Court yet. Uh, in fact, it's still in district court, so it has a way to go. But it is a really interesting and an important case. Uh, NRA uh, Institute for Legislative Action talking about this today, saying that the plaintiffs in an NRA-backed lawsuit have asked a federal court today to declare Maryland's handgun qualification license to be unconstitutional. This is a case called Maryland Shall Issue versus Hogan. Uh, it is in the U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland. And as I mentioned, th this goes after the handgun qualification license, which is another barrier that the state of Maryland has put in place between law-abiding residents and their right to keep and bear arms. So I've taken a look at the complaint. I want to share a little bit of this with you so you can see what it is we're talking about here. This is from the uh, lawsuit, Maryland Shall Issue versus Hogan, talking about the handgun qualification license. They, they, you have to get this before you can exercise your right to own a handgun. And as the lawsuit says, this process is lengthy. It averages a month. It's expensive, totaling hundreds of dollars in fees, costs, and travel, not counting time off of work. Invasive, including fingerprints and a full background investigation, and completely unnecessary. Because every handgun purchaser must already pass a background check under federal law, which the federal government has streamlined via computer to take place in MINUS, the National Instant Check System. Under prior Maryland law, 
this litigation says. As it remains to this day, every handgun purchaser is subjected to the same background check required for a handgun qualification license for every purchase of every handgun, including purchases taking place immediately after the receipt of the handgun qualification license. So you spend a month getting all of your paperwork in order, going through the background check, Maryland uh, police come back and say, okay, you're good to go. You've passed your, here's your uh, handgun qualification license. You get your license, you go to the gun store, you go through another background check. It is completely redundant. Uh, And not only that, as um, NRA's Institute for Legislative Action pointed out, the state's own expert witness admitted the law was created to, quote, intimidate law-abiding citizens from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. This is designed to have a chilling effect on the ability of folks who are legally eligible to own a handgun from doing so. What is the process like? Let's delve into this a little bit here. To qualify for a handgun qualification license, state of Maryland and Maryland State Police, through their uh, implementing regulations and practices, require that first you have to file an application online through the internet Disclosing your name, address, driver's license, photographic information, uh, place and date of birth, height, weight, race, sex, eye, hair color, occupation, home and work telephone. You must own or obtain access to a computer with an internet connection for an electronic submission of the application because you cannot drop off a hard copy. Uh, You have to own or have access to a scanner to scan and copy the certification issued by a state-certified handgun instructor as part of the application electronic submission. You can't do this unless you have a scanner. You have to have a fixed address and a fixed telephone number. Uh, You also have to submit, as part of the application, a complete set of your fingerprints taken and submitted in the manner prescribed by the secretary on the application. As implemented by the Maryland State Police, fingerprints will be accepted only if the prints are taken via a live scan technology and only by a state-certified vendor, and you have to submit them within 72 hours of taking your fingerprints. You also have to pay the vendor fees, which include a live scan fingerprinting fee of $17, an $18 fee for a state of Maryland criminal records check, uh, and a federal criminal records check fee of $14.50. Then you have to complete a four-hour firearm safety training course, which is taught by a private state-approved qualified handgun instructor within three years uh, prior to the submission of an application, which covers the following. Travel to and from... Uh, the training course, which means because the Maryland State Police has required the discharge of live ammunition as part of the training, you got to go to a shooting range, and then you got to pay whatever fees the range might charge. Then you have to pay a $50 application fee, or if you need to renew your handgun qualification license, you have to pay a $20 fee. It expires every 10 years. Uh, and by the way, if you can't afford it, doesn't matter. You have to have a credit or a debit card. Can't pay by cash or check. And you have to wait again 27 to 28 days on average before this license is received, during which time the applicant's constitutional right to purchase a handgun totally denied. There is no provision for an immediate or emergency issuance of a handgun qualification license. So if, if, if all of a sudden, let's say you break up with your uh, significant other and they get violent, and they get angry, Well, you can take out an order of protection, but you can't buy a gun. So you better hope and pray that that piece of paper is going to be enough to protect you because you won't have a firearm to protect yourself. This is, again, an attempt to chill 
the exercise of the Second Amendment. And this is the type of stuff. I'm so glad that this is being challenged, honestly, because this is honestly, these are the types of laws that brought me into an understanding of why gun control hurts law abiding people far more than it impacts criminals. Um, I've told this story a couple of times before, but when I met my wife back in 1996, we met online. Uh, at the time, I was living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I was working as a uh, associate news producer. Uh, my now wife was living in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, she was a single mom of two. She was working at a nonprofit. Um, Camden was the murder capital of the United States when we met back in 1996, when we met online. Didn't meet in person until 97. And I didn't know much. I, I Living in Oklahoma, I, I didn't know much about New Jersey gun laws. Oklahoma's gun laws were good. I didn't really think much about it. And at the time, I was 21, 22. It really just wasn't much of an issue for me. But one night, we're talking on the phone. It's about midnight. And uh, I hear gunshots through the receiver. And I called her name. And she didn't answer. And so I yelled a little louder, and she didn't answer. At this point, we'd probably only been talking like maybe three weeks or a month. I did not know her address. I knew her phone number. I didn't know where she lived. I couldn't call 911 and you know, say, hey, go to this apartment. I didn't know. So what I could do is scream into the phone, which I did for a good 45 minutes or so. Never got a response. At some point, I hung up the phone stupidly and then tried to call back and, of course, got a busy signal. Busy signal, busy signal. And I spent a sleepless night not knowing what was going on, but assuming the worst. Uh, the next morning, I called her employer because I knew at least the name of the, the place where she worked. Um, and I asked to be transferred. And she picked up the phone. And I was, I mean, honestly, I was expecting it to just, you know, roll over, maybe kick back to the operator. She answered. And I said, what? I, mean, I was just stunned. I was flabbergasted. What, you know, there were gunshots. And she said, oh, I fell asleep. I said, what do you mean you fell asleep? I heard the gunshots through the phone. If I could hear them, how loud must they have been for you? What do you mean you fell asleep? She said, look, this is Camden. She said, you know, that's like the sound of crickets where you live. She said, I didn't even hear them. And I remember thinking, doesn't New Jersey have really tough gun laws? And she says, <laughs> just got a, got, a, got a cold, hard laugh. And I started looking into the gun laws in New Jersey. And the gun laws in New Jersey, just like the gun laws in Maryland, are written in such a way that it is nearly impossible for someone like the woman who's now my wife to be able to legally obtain a firearm. She did not have a car. She relied on public transportation. She worked full-time. Before she was working full-time, she was in college full-time. There was really no way for her to... I mean, she would have had to take an entire multiple days off of work to go down to the Camden County Sheriff's Office to drop off her application, you know, ride the bus back and forth, 
Uh, she would have had to figure out a way to actually get to a gun store if she had been approved. But she could have figured that out. But the time and the cost was prohibitive for her. Even though she wasn't a prohibited person, and, and she would have liked to have had a firearm in her apartment for self-defense and for the protection of her kids, it was, it was impossible. There were too many barriers. There were too many burdens put on her shoulders to be able to exercise her right to keep and bear arms. And I see this at work with the handgun qualification license in Maryland. You know, Baltimore, Maryland has had more than 300 homicides for six years in a row. Back in 2013, then-Governor Martin O'Malley put in place uh, the Maryland Firearm Safety Act. This is a package of gun control laws. Supposedly, it was going to make Maryland safer. I mean, it's right there in the title, Maryland Firearm Safety Act. 2014, homicide rate in Baltimore was steady. 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. Historic high levels of homicides. Criminals in Maryland, they're not waiting a month to get a gun. They're not submitting their fingerprints. They're not going through a background check. They're not following the handgun qualification license statute. They're acquiring guns on the black market. They're using friends and family. They're stealing firearms. This law, this handgun qualification license law in Maryland, this isn't aimed at violent criminals. It's not designed to impact violent criminals. It is designed to stop those who could legally buy a gun from doing so unless they're willing to pay hundreds of dollars in fees and wait weeks at a time for the government permission slip that will allow them to go to a gun store and undergo another background check before they purchase a firearm. These are the types of laws, honestly, that I, I want to see the Supreme Court take up and strike down. Restoring, and Maryland's got a lot of work to do. I mean, like, seriously, handgun qualification license, this is... One bad law, there are a lot of other ones, including the may-issue carry license laws in the state of Maryland, the uh, ban on modern sporting rifles. I mean, there are a lot of awful laws that can and should be challenged. But I'm glad to see the handgun qualification license is getting some legal scrutiny. And uh, my fingers are crossed that we still have nine Supreme Court justices when this case eventually reaches the Supreme Court so that there is the... Um, potential to see this law ruled unconstitutional. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's uh, Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report. We're going to start there. Uh, we actually talked about this case, I believe it was last week, a murder in Philadelphia, and the uh, district attorney's office was blaming the, uh, the judge in the case. Now, couple of former prosecutors who are criminal defense attorneys say, look, the EA should have done more to keep this uh, suspect in jail rather than allowing this suspect to, uh, to be released on relatively low bonds for a couple of violent crimes just weeks before he allegedly murdered a man. Uh, this is from uh, KYW in uh, Philadelphia. 
This uh, involves the murder of uh, Milan Lonkar, who is uh, 25 years old. And as I mentioned, uh, Josephus Davis had two prior robbery convictions to his name already at the time. He had served prison time. He was on probation for two years, and he was arrested for a carjacking. Uh, carjacking an Uber driver at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Probably an unarmed Uber driver, since that's, you know, the rideshare company's policy. While he was in jail, he was additionally charged with assaulting a prison guard, which also was a probation violation. But in both of those cases... Two separate judges reduced the bond for Davis, allowing him to end up, I think he ended up paying $3,200 total and walked out of jail. Uh, and the district attorney in the case, Larry Krasner, who, by the way, has gotten a lot of criticism over the last few years for being soft on crime. He turned around and said, look, the, 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 there's no way the judge should have done this. This is outrageous that the judge should have done this. Basically thinking, okay, don't blame it on me. Well, criminal defense attorneys Bill Brennan and Tom Burke say prosecutors should have called. Philadelphia's probation and parole department to advocate for a detainer, uh, which they say is basically a mark on a defendant's court records to keep them in jail. Brennan says it's a very common practice, especially where there's a serious crime. The district attorneys don't control the lodging of a detainer, but they certainly can call the probation department and advocate for it. Uh, Burke said, quote, I don't know how a guy like this slips through the cracks. And even if he did, the DA had these files on their desk, in their hands. All they had to do was punch up on the screen and see if a detainer was lost. That's all they had to do. Uh, Michael Diamondstein, former Philly prosecutor, says this bail could have been a dollar. He said if the back judge knew if he picked up a robbery or another case, the back judge is never going to let him out. Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia, was asked about this by KYW, and he said, quote, you know, that's not how this works, right? I mean, I understand that probation and parole would like to say that it's somebody else's fault when they don't do their job, but the bottom line is it's their job to do detainers refusing to answer whether his office called the probation department and asked that a detainer should be filed. He said, quote, we do not do their job. And I would also point out that probation and parole has had no meetings in its offices and no home visits since March. Well, that is worth pointing out. Because here's the thing. In Philadelphia, it's not just one person that's responsible for the 499 homicides that took place in the city. Obviously, the people who pulled the trigger, the people who stabbed the knife, the people who use their fist or their feet or their vehicle to take a human life. Obviously, they're the ones who are most responsible here. But in terms of law enforcement efforts and efforts by the city to reduce violent crime, yeah, Larry Krasner, you do have a lot of blame on your shoulders because you have gone light on criminals. The number of felony cases that your department is not prosecuting is far higher than it was under your predecessor. Nearly half of all felony cases in Philadelphia right now are dropped by the DA's office before they go to trial. Nearly half. Now we know that the best way, the number one most effective way to reduce violent crime is for those perpetrators of violent crime to face consequences. If you're not arrested... If the homicide clearance rate, for example, is 20% and you've got a 80% chance of getting away with murder, guess what? Murder is going to go up. If there are only, let's say, you know, 15% of carjacking cases that are ever solved, guess what happens? Carjackings go up because criminals know that they can get away with these crimes. And Larry Krasner's office has ensured that, you know, look, even if an arrest is made, even if somebody's picked up and charged, 
50-50 odds that you're not going to go to trial. So, yeah, let's talk about the judges who let these guys out on low bail. Let's talk about the probation and parole department who did not on their own file a detainer. But let's also talk about the DA's office that didn't ask for one. Let's talk about the DA's office that keeps dropping charges against violent criminals. There is more than enough blame to go around in Philadelphia. Starting again with the perpetrators of these violence, but including those public officials whose job it is to stop it. Now, our armed citizen story of the day from South Bend, Indiana, where uh, two people were shot during a home invasion on, uh, well, this was, I guess, about 1.45 this morning. Uh, someone called police about shots fired. While responding to the area, police were notified about two shooting victims. One uh, located uh, a couple of blocks away from where this uh, shooting had allegedly been uh, called in. The second at a local hospital. When uh, police began investigating, they determined that uh, both of these individuals were connected to each other. Uh, and both of them were actually trying to break into a home in South Bend when the uh, resident inside fired several shots. The uh, person who was located a couple of blocks away, taken to a local hospital, listed as a stable. The second person who was shot, treated at the hospital, and then uh, taken to jail on an unrelated warrant. The investigation continues, but uh, right now, sure looks like this is a uh, pretty clear-cut case of self-defense. And finally today, our good deed of the day from Prince George, Virginia where an off-duty officer saved a woman from a burning vehicle. This was uh, back on January 19th. 31-year-old woman ran off the uh, side of the road in Prince George, struck several trees. Car sustained uh, heavy damage before it ended up falling into a ditch. The vehicle started smoldering and eventually caught fire. Uh, But thankfully, before the car was engulfed in flames, uh, off-duty Prince George Auxiliary Officer Rally Fields noticed the smoke there in the tree line. And it was just sort of a random happenstance. Phil says he left the house a little bit earlier than he normally does because he wanted to get gas. And then as he's driving to the gas station, he sees the smoke off in this ditch. And he said, okay. So he goes down, get, he parks his car, gets out, starts yelling, didn't get a response. Then when he got closer, he saw the uh, driver's side door was cracked and there was a woman trapped inside. A woman told Fields that uh, she had pain in her neck and her chest and her back. So the smoke was becoming unbearable. Feels that he could see sparks coming out from the uh, floorboard on the passenger side. He says the uh, the door was jammed when I finally cracked it open. He said, I told her I need you to turn your legs and slide around without hurting yourself. Uh, he said, we're going to get you out of here. Everything's going to be all right. And he was able to do so. Helped carry the woman up the hill. Another woman who uh, saw what was going on had pulled over to assist, kept her in the back of her car until she was taken to a Southside Regional Medical Center for non-life-threatening injuries. About two minutes after Rally Fields was able to extricate that woman from the vehicle, That car is fully engulfed in flames. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, Rally Fields there in uh, Prince George, Virginia, we thank you, sir, for your very good deed. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Now, look, you know, normally what I try to do on Fridays is not do a show so I can try to write for the weekend. But since I was off a couple of days this week with the whole, you know, deer running into the car stuff. Uh, I will be doing a show on Friday. We will be back with another edition of a Bearing Arms Cam and Company. But in the meantime, don't forget to uh, check out BearingArms.com throughout the day for the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. You can also subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Or you can uh, subscribe to Bearing Arms Cam and Company on Rumble. 
or on Amazon Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or SoundCloud or Stitcher or probably some other ones too. I was going to try to make up a couple, but uh, if I did, it'd probably end up being like a porn site. So I'm not even going to go there. But I hope you have a great rest of your Thursday. We will be back tomorrow with more Second Amendment news and information. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.